God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come and to worship you. We thank you for another new morning where your mercies are new. Uh, We thank you for a beautiful sunrise and another day to give you praise and to experience the joy of being in relationship with you. And I pray that as we turn our attention here uh, to you this morning, um, that you would enlighten our hearts, open our eyes. I pray that you would encourage us, convict us, that you would draw us closer to you, um, that we would leave here in in some small way at least being changed more into your likeness. Um, And we thank you that you are a God who seeks us out and was preparing this place for worship uh, this morning long before we were even waking up. And we lift up your name, we praise you, and it's in uh, the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. All right, picking up where we left off last week, like uh, they kind of do when you watch TV, right? Previously on Epic. (laughs) The people of Israel uh, have been freed from slavery in Egypt. God miraculously defended them against Pharaoh and his army. Uh, he miraculously provided a way for them through the Red Sea on dry ground, or dry ground. And if you will remember as well, all that they had to do was stand and watch as God delivered them. And he displayed his awesome glory, uh, the miracles that he accomplished on their behalf. And the people of Israel had the privilege of being witnesses to God's strength and his majesty. I mean, that's what we've been looking at as we've been going through Exodus. And now uh, they're in the desert, in the wilderness, on the other side of the Red Sea. And we are talking desert. I mean, empty and lifeless. Uh, So much so that Exodus 15 tells us that shortly after crossing the Red Sea, they went three days in the wilderness without finding any water at all. Uh, But God provided as he always does, and their thirst was quenched when uh, through his miraculous provision once again, God turned a bitter spring into pure, sweet, drinkable water. And the people of Israel were able to slake their thirst. And now, having had something to drink, they realize they're hungry. And like I said previously as well, these people are just artful complainers. So they they begin to whine and complain against God, reflecting back to their time in Egypt when they had food. Even though they were slaves, at least they were well-fed slaves. And God's response is to tell them that he'll take care of them. He's going to satisfy their needs, and specifically in this case, their hunger. So if you'll turn with me to Exodus 16, we're going to read verses 4 through 7 for starters, or it's on that inside page of your handout if you want to follow along there. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? I want to stop at these verses in Exodus 16 for a few minutes before I really get into the the central idea of my message this morning. Because these verses tell us why God is doing all that he is doing to rescue the people of Israel. Okay, verses 6 through 7. Let me read it again real quick. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. 
because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. Now, there's a, a popular heresy in the church today that's attracting, to pe- uh, attracting people to Jesus in droves. Although people aren't really coming to Jesus, they're just coming to what I would call a false gospel. Okay? Uh, in fact, one of the largest churches in America right now that claims to have about 40,000 people in attendance on a weekly basis has this idea as its theology, this premise, okay? And I bring it up briefly this morning because I want you to know that it's there. I want you to be prepared to identify it if you see it uh, and to stand against it should it come creeping its way into your life or your heart in some regard. So here it is. Many people who call themselves Christians today believe in a popular heresy that God exists for your glory, Okay? God sits in heaven waiting for you to ask him for his blessings so that he can bless you and lift you up and give you things and glorify you. But the Bible reminds us that God does not exist for our glory. We exist for God's glory. Okay? In fact, all that God does in all of his actions, all he does it all for his glory. All that God does is done to lift up his name, to honor his name, to proclaim the renown of God, his grace and his kindness, his compassionate works, his beauty and his splendor. Now, let me say, I believe that God does indeed bless his people. And I believe that God does indeed lift us up. And that we should pray and ask God to do those things in our lives. Because he can and he will and he does. And so we should ask But any of the blessings that we receive from God are the byproducts of God bringing glory to himself. Okay. Said another way, all of the things that God does to bless his people, to bless you and to bless me, to save his people, to provide for his people, to deal graciously with his people, all of these things ultimately bring glory to God, not to us. And it's a hard thing to understand, I would say. It's an even harder thing to embrace because we we tend to be a little bit narcissistic in our thinking. Well, I should say I tend to be a little bit narcissistic in my thinking. But the truth is that if God is more glorified through your suffering, then God will lead you to suffering. If God is more glorified through struggle in your life, then God will allow you to struggle. I mean, could God have brought the people of Israel out of Egypt to the promised land without leading them through the wilderness? Yeah, absolutely. He, he's God. He could have teleported them there if he wanted to. Okay? But his constant provision for his people brings glory to his name. And their learning to trust him for everything brings glory to his name. And what about the cross? You know, could God have figured out another way to save the human race without putting Jesus up on the cross to die for the sins of the world? I mean, he's God, so I think he he could have. But through the cross, God is most glorified. So to the cross, Jesus went to bring glory to God. Okay? And Jesus brings glory to God through his death and his resurrection because it is God through Jesus who provides a way out of sin and evil and death. Just as it was God who miraculously led the people out of slavery in Egypt through the ten plagues that he brought and through the Red Sea by the miraculous power of his hand. 
Okay? And God is going to provide food for the Israelites in the wilderness so that they can see the glory of the Lord yet again. So please understand, if you encounter a form of Christianity that says that it's God's will for you to be glorified and live in abundance and to have wealth of blessings from God that take their form in physical reality, in a physical reality, and live life without any hardships or suffering, you're facing a lie. That is not true Christianity. It is God's will for God to be glorified. And hear this. And you too will be glorified in that and have an abundance and experience the wealth of blessings from God through Jesus. Because through Jesus, you have every spiritual blessing, like it says in Ephesians 1. And that's all that you need. That's all that you need. And so God does not promise us anywhere in Scripture health or wealth or glory or honor in this life. But he promises us all of these things in the spiritual realm through Jesus, who has glorified the Father. And that distinction is important. So make no mistake about it, please. God does not exist for your glory. You exist for his glory. And what a privilege, what a privilege it is for us to be the people of God who exist for the glory of God. Let me wrap up this point by by saying that uh, this theological idea comes with some wonderful personal application. People all over this country are searching for a meaning and for a purpose for their life. I had a conversation with somebody just this week about that. And most of us, I think, at some point in our life have wondered if there might be more to life than just waking up and going to work and paying the bills and earning money and taking a vacation every now and then. Right? Doesn't there have to be something more? And I would say absolutely there is. The purpose of your life is to bring glory to God. So how do you do that? A couple things real quick. You give him thanks for his provision in, you, in your life. You praise him for his goodness, for his kindness and his blessings. You worship him like we do here at church for who he is and all that he's done for you in your life. You honor him on a daily basis with the work that you do, remembering that it may be your boss who tells you to do your job or how to do your job, but the truth is that you work for God and to bring him glory. That's why you do what you do. You raise your children to know that God is good and loving and kind and gracious, generous. You serve the church because the church is the precious bride of Jesus that he loves even though it may be dysfunctional. And you look for other people in your life, in your world, in your sphere of influence who are starving for some sort of purpose in their life. And you point them to Jesus so that they too can know that he satisfies that he provides, that he loves, that he gives them purpose. You seek to honor God with all that you do and all that you have because all of it has been graciously given to you from his hand and out of his loving kindness for you. And if you're, if you're in some sort of rut in your life right now, and then I urge you, I dare you even, to go before the Lord in prayer and ask him this question, and I put it in your notes for you. Father, what more can I do with this precious life you have given me to bring glory to your name? Pray that prayer. Commit to praying it a couple times a day for a couple weeks or months if you have to. And if you listen and you respond to how he answers that question, when he answers your prayer and you follow through in obedience to what he tells you, you're going to find more personal fulfillment in your life 
than you have ever previously known. I promise you that. Because you exist to bring glory to God. And the more glory that he receives through you, the more that you will find satisfaction in him. And if you don't believe me, try it. Like I said, I dare you. Commit to live the rest of this year, the rest of 2014, for the glory of God rather than your own glory and see what God does in your life. And just do me a favor. At the end of the year, come back and tell me because I want to know, okay? I need sermon material for 2015. (laughs) Now skip ahead with me to Exodus 16, verses 14 through 21. Let me read this. It says, And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. I think this passage has two simultaneous realities for us, and I want to cover both. First, it's got a spiritual reality, and then it's got a physical reality. Okay, And I want to start with the spiritual reality. So I'm going to read to you from John chapter 6, verses 27 through 35. If you want to turn there in your Bible, you can. I didn't give you this entire passage in your notes, and that's okay. So just stick with me while I read it, and we cover the spiritual reality. Okay. Do not work. This is Jesus speaking. Do not work for the food that endures to, I'm sorry, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So I've been saying that all of Scripture points ultimately to Jesus. That's the point of this epic series, right? We're going through looking at all the ways that Scripture, some of the ways that Scripture points to Jesus. We don't have time to cover all of the ways. But bread from heaven should be a pretty obvious one in light of these words that Jesus speaks, right? Jesus is the bread of life. God was giving the people an illustration in the Old Testament of what Jesus would mean when he came. And for the spiritually hungry, Jesus is the satisfaction that you're looking for. And if you've ever wondered why all of the things in this life fail to leave you satisfied, the reason is because only Jesus gives life to the human soul. Only he satisfies and fills our spirit. 
And like God provided for the people of Israel food to fill their stomachs while they wandered in the wilderness, God has provided Jesus for us food to fill our souls while we wander our way through the wilderness of this life on our way to heaven. And any who eat the bread of life, which is Jesus, will not be hungry forever. That's the promise he makes. And though they still wander through the wilderness of this life, they will be satisfied. Now, you remember I said last week that this is simple. If you were here, I I talked about how the gospel is really simple. As much as we try and make it complicated, it's really not. Look how simple Jesus makes it. Verses 28 and 29. Let me read it again. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So what does it take? Simply believe in Jesus for the satisfaction that your soul is looking for. And yet, as simple as that is, most people screw this up. Mormons are usually the first example that comes to mind because we live in a community with so many of them. And especially because they, they claim to be Christians. But I want you to understand, they're not, okay? Here's a small excerpt from their articles of faith found within one of their holy books called The Pearl of Great Price. Listen to this, and I want you to see if you can identify how their doctrine actually stands in opposition to the truth of the Bible that we just read. Okay, Article 1, Section 3. We believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Ooh, that's so close. So close. It's tricky. It sounds pretty good. Okay, but did you see how they took the simple requirements of Jesus and actually made them harder? Jesus said, you do the works of God if you believe in him. In other words, you trust in him as the bread of life. You feast on him. You look to him for your salvation and you will be saved. But the Mormons add to that. They say Jesus is not enough. They say you must believe in Jesus and obey the law and ordinances of the gospel. And they're wrong. Okay? They're wrong. And honestly, it doesn't even make sense because the gospel has no laws and ordinances. Okay? That's the whole point. Here is the gospel. Jesus is the bread of life, and anyone who believes in him will never be hungry. Or to say it another way, believe in Jesus and you will be saved. How simple is that? Someone tell me where law and ordinances are in that. There's no law there. It's not a law. It's an invitation. And the spiritual implications of manna from heaven in Exodus 16 are simply this. God has intervened to save us. And he invites us into the salvation that he has secured for us. Jesus came down from heaven as the perfect spiritual food for those who are starving in the spiritual isolation of sin. And Jesus alone is all of our provision for salvation, all of it. And we need nothing more besides him. Like he says in John 6, 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now you may be sitting here this morning asking, wondering, why am I harping on this idea this morning? Okay, why do I harp on it again and again and again? If you've been coming to Maricopa Springs, I touch on this pretty frequently. Why do I do it so regularly on a Sunday morning? Someone recently directed my attention to a survey conducted by George Barna. 
about basic Christian beliefs and how they're viewed in America today. And one statistic in particular was absolutely shocking to me. Okay? I put this in your notes so you can follow along. It says only one quarter of adults, 28%, believe that it is impossible for someone to earn their way into heaven through good behavior. Not quite half of all born-again Christians, 47%, strongly reject the notion of earning salvation through their deeds. I had to read that like four or five times to understand because it's kind of confusing the way it's worded. So let me say it a different way. In other words, three out of four people think that you can earn your way to heaven by being good. Three out of four people. Even more frightening than that, less than half of the people in America who profess to be born-again Christians, which means that they understand what the gospel message is, supposedly, less than half are opposed to the idea that you can earn salvation through good deeds. And if this is true, statistically, statistically speaking then, half of you in this room don't understand the gospel. That's mind-blowing. Half of you could actually be Mormon or Muslim or Hindu because they all believe that you get to heaven by doing good works or any other religion that bases itself off of good works. Okay? Just so you can see the implications of this, I'm going to ask this half of the room, stand up real quick if you're able. Just stand up for me real quick. Stand up. Look around. Half of the room doesn't believe that you only get to heaven through Jesus. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Okay, now I pray to God that this statistic is not true in my church. I mean, I literally get on my knees and I beg God that this statistic is not true in my church. I pray that half the people listening to me preach don't hold this worldview. Because what it leads to is pride and self-righteousness and ultimately hell. Because you are turning your back on God who has made the way to find your own way. And there is no righteousness apart from the righteousness of Christ that he freely gives to us. The invitation is there for you freely to accept. What there is apart from the righteousness of Christ is empty religion and spiritual bankruptcy and hopelessness and smug piousness and ultimately eternal damnation. That's what there is. And there is no way to God, there is no salvation apart from Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and who has freely offered you an opportunity to be saved by his grace and not by your meritous works. So please, 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 my Christian brothers and sisters, who I truly love dearly, please, don't make the mistake that the Mormons do and that so many Christians make. Don't add to the good news of Jesus by thinking that your good works impress God. I mean, he alone is the spiritual food that we need. And he alone can provide a way for us to be made right with him. He alone receives the glory for doing the work that only he can do. God saves us through Jesus and all that we must do is believe. That is so simple. And anything other than that is the rotten, moldy, worm-infested manna of death. 
whereby humans trust in their own means for their provision and not in the power of God to save them. Now that's the spiritual implication of our passage from Exodus. Exodus, throw your whole life upon the generous provision of God through Jesus for your salvation. Now what about the, uh, the physical implications? If you permit me to have a few more minutes, I want to give you some further practical application from Exodus 16. Okay? We are told by Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 11, to pray and ask God for our daily bread. And when Jesus instructed his followers to pray, he instructed them to ask God for the daily provision of their needs. Okay? Don't trust in your own efforts for your physical needs, but trust in God. This is the lesson I think that we learn in Exodus 16. But what I, I, I want to be careful here a little bit, okay? Because this incident in Exodus 16 is a, a special circumstance for a special people in a specific time, okay? So what that means is that we dare not take all of the principles contained in Exodus 16 in this story and apply them as a hard and fast rule to our life. What do I mean by that? For example, the people of Israel were told not to store any food overnight for the following day. Does that mean that we shouldn't store any food in our cupboards for the following day? No. Should we apply this principle and empty our retirement savings accounts? Should we stop being prudent and having an emergency fund? Should we only have enough money in our bank account for today? Okay, no, right? That would be a bad interpretation and application of the significance of scripture. Proverbs 21.20 speaks about the fool who uses up all of his resources. So, what can we apply from Exodus 16? A couple different things. First, God will provide for our needs and his provision will always be enough. Okay, this is very much the story of Leanne and I right now. I quit my job at Chase Bank to shepherd this church full time and it was a pay cut. Has God provided? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I have a sneaking suspicion that someone in this room paid $500 towards my electric bill. I don't know who you are, but thank you. Because, because we probably would have melted this summer without God being generous and kind through you. But I, I want you to understand here, okay, our, our current financial circumstances were our own choice, and we are happy and content because we know that this is what God has asked us to do. And we know that he will supply all of our needs. Does God's provision in our life in this season mean that we're going to be able to take elaborate vacations and dine out all the time and make all the home improvements that we want? No. And we chose to give that up when I quit, okay? But God's provision is always going to be enough to meet our needs. Always. I mean, I could tell you a dozen ways in the last month that God has provided for my family. And every night I pray that God will give us our daily bread. Literally like it says in Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer. And every day we have food and our bills are paid. And the point is this. Please understand whether you have abundant means or adequate means or less than adequate means. Whether you're rich or middle class or poor. Remember that your provision always comes from God. It always comes from his hand. He gives it to you. And if Jesus is your Lord and master. Then you will always have enough for your needs. For your needs. 
even if God doesn't give you everything for all of your wants and desires. So be joyful in what you receive from God and don't grumble and complain against him. Instead, trust him, trust him, lean into him more. Let him be your provision and your satisfaction. The second thing we learn from the story in Exodus 16 is that God's provision is constant, constant. We didn't read this in our text, but does anybody know how long the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness? Forty years. And did you know that every single day, except the seventh day of the week, when God provided twice as much on the sixth day, every other day of the week, for 40 years, the Israelites woke up and there on the ground was their daily provision of food miraculously provided to them by God. Leanne and I recently bought a a couple trees for our backyard, and I have to admit, sometimes I forget to water them on schedule. I'm not very good at that. And they go a day or two before I remember, oh, shoot, I need to water the trees, okay? Fortunately, my children scream and cry when they don't get their daily provision, so I don't forget, okay? But God is not like this. He does not forget to provide for us. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't fail to come through. He doesn't miss hearing his uh, cell phone alarm to remind him, okay? We don't even have to cry or alert him to, uh, uh, alert his attention to our needs for him to know what we need. He already knows. And he is faithful and he is relentless in his provision for his people. Approximately 14,600 days wandering through the wilderness in the desert. And not once, not one single day did God fail to remember to come through for his people and provide. His provision is constant. He is trustworthy. Now the third thing we learn about his provision for his people is that large portions of the Christian's life will be spent in the wilderness. And yet God will never abandon us there. Incredible, isn't it, that God leads his people out of slavery, yay, into the desert wilderness. Boo. Okay, what's the saying? Out of the kettle into the frying pan? You know, they went from, uh, into the fire. Okay, thank you. All right. Same thing. Same thing. They went from hard to difficult. It didn't get easier. And as Christians, we're not called to live a life of ease and comfort. We're called to holiness. And God knows that most of us learn holiness best through times of struggle. I could probably say all of us, but I'll leave a little bit of room there just in case. I mean, I wish that I learned holiness best in times of idleness and relaxation. Because then God could give me a beach house And I could go there and I could be holy and I could drink Corona all day and I'd be on the beach getting holier and holier every day. Okay? But you laugh because you know that's not how it works. I don't learn holiness when my life is easy and comfortable. It's the wilderness that draws us to God, if only out of sheer desperation. And maybe you've walked through a wilderness season. As Christians, we will have suffering. And we will have seasons where we're in the wilderness. And if you haven't had one of those yet, pay attention to these next few words so that you're prepared. In spite of the wasteland that we find ourselves in and the distance that it feels like God has from us 
and the hopelessness of how far away the horizon is. God is faithful to provide for us, to be with us, and to lead us out like he did for Israel. Psalm 68, 19, one of my favorites that I memorized for those seasons of struggle. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. And in the wilderness, we're not alone. We're not left to fend for ourselves. Our prayers, even against God, don't go unheard. He hears. And he has not abandoned us. He will make provision for our daily needs. And he will carry us through that season of wandering. Which leads me to my fourth and final point. In truth, guys, the only thing that we really need is Jesus. You need Jesus more than you need your house. You need Jesus more than you need your job. You need Jesus more than you need your spouse. You need Jesus more than you need your money. You need Jesus more than you need your food. You need Jesus more than you need water. You need Jesus more than you need even air. And you need Jesus more than you need your heart to beat and your brain to function and your life to continue. Okay? Without Jesus, you have nothing. And with Jesus, if you have only Jesus and nothing else, you have everything in him. And we're going to take communion together now. And at Maricopa Springs, we do that through intinction. Okay? And all that means is that our worship team is going to come up here in a minute And they're going to play some songs to lead us in worship. And the next two songs are communion songs, but you're invited at any point during this worship set to make your way to the back of the room where you're going to find the various communion elements. And we've got wine and grape juice back there, whatever your preference is. You can take a hunk of the bread and you can just dip it right there and eat it right there at the table. Okay, And I always mention, it's messy, it's okay. Drip it all over the tablecloth, we don't care. What communion is, though, is an act of remembrance. We remember the blood of Jesus that was freely spilled as we take the wine. And we remember the body of Jesus that was given up for our sins as we eat the bread. And we remember that where we were powerless to pull ourselves up out of the pit of sin and evil and death, Jesus, through his death and resurrection, gave us salvation through his sacrifice. And when we cried out to God to set us free from slavery, and when we whined to God about our hungry souls, God heard our cries and set us free through the bread of life. Jesus, the Savior, who bore our emptiness of sin so that we could know the fullness of God. And he is our provision. He is our manna from heaven. He is our bread of life. And in him we have everything. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your bread of life, for Jesus, who came so that we might be filled, so that we might have righteousness given to us by him and so that he might bear our sins and we can know forgiveness. And God, we thank you that in Jesus we have everything even if we have nothing. And so we come to the table and we give you thanks for the blood that Jesus spilled and the body that was given up for our sake and we worship you. 
In Jesus' name, amen.